Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is the 20th of May. Uh, There are ongoing conversations about making the District of Columbia a state, also conversations about making Puerto Rico a state. I think it gets us into a larger conversation about state lines, um, which led to this intriguing headline about voters in five rural Oregon counties. So the state of Oregon is what would be in view here. And then also the state of Idaho, because uh, there are voters in five rural Oregon counties that have approved measures to consider departing from Oregon and adjoining themselves to the state of Idaho. So um, you might say, well, this is just silly. Well, you know, here's the reality. Who who drew the lines? Who gets to draw the lines? And Are there people really thinking about how state lines might be redrawn across the country? Well, in fact, I did a little research, and there are. There are some guys who have um, done research based on economic commuter patterns, and based on their algorithm, uh, they think that they have better boundaries for all 50 states. Uh, And so they've actually created a map showing what 50 states might look like if they were redrawn based on economic connections. So just stop for a moment and ask yourself, who drew the lines? Um, Are they drawn in a way that's reasonable? Um, Should we have a conversation about redrawing state lines? If so, what would be the right way to do it? What would you on what would you base a conversation about where state lines should be drawn. Would it be based on, like, geography? Like, well, my horse and buggy can't get through that ditch, so let's draw the line there, and the people that live on the other side of it, you know, they're going to have to associate with a state that faces the other direction from this ditch? Because, you know, my horse and buggy doesn't cross that ditch. Because, you know what? We don't live in horse and buggy times anymore. We live in times of telecommunication. So here's the question. Do you have a sense of genuine belonging to the state where you reside? And maybe you do. Like, you know, maybe you live in Indiana and you, like, really are a Hoosier. Um, but maybe you live in Indiana and you've lived in 15 other places before that, and Indiana is your current home, but, you know, it's not, well, certainly not your eternal home, which gets us into another conversation, right? Where is our home as Christians? How would you respond to a proposal, a wide-open conversation about your state lines being redrawn, not just your congressional district being redistricted, but an actual conversation about where should the lines be drawn? All right. In terms of what's going on in uh, at state level news, the governor of Texas has signed into law a fetal heartbeat bill, making it illegal in that state to terminate the life of a child whose heart has begun to beat. This effectively changes the timing of when a woman can legally seek and when providers can legally perform an abortion. 
in the state of Texas. It moves that from like 22 weeks to six weeks of pregnancy. We talked earlier this week about the Supreme Court's agreement to hear a case out of Mississippi where the state has challenged uh, the Roe v. Wade standard of viability and instead set a 15-week limit um, saying, hey, you know, there's no reason that Roe sets it at viability when viability is a moving target. So we're going to set it at 15. The Supreme Court has agreed to take up that case. We're going to talk about that with Ben Johnson from The Daily Wire up next. Our friend Ben Johnson is back. He is a pastor. He's a good thinker. And he now writes at the Daily Wire. You can find him at dailywire.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you as always, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So um, let's let's get to the conversation about things that the Supreme Court is taking up and what relevance that might have to the 2020 election cycle. But let's start with President Biden's Supreme Court commission. What's going on there? Well, President Biden, as you know, uh, when he was campaigning, was asked several times about uh, the size and the shape of the U.S. Supreme Court. And every time they came up, both he and Kamala Harris refused to say anything about it. Uh, They said that uh, they would when it was fine, when push came to shove, he finally said that he would appoint a commission to look into the matter of expanding the Supreme Court. You and I would call that court packing. And uh, he said that he was going to, uh, to appoint a commission. They would make recommendations. And that would be that. Well, he has appointed that uh, that commission and it had its very first meeting on Wednesday. So within six months, they're going to issue a report whether to add new justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this is, of course, incredibly concerning. This would be the first time the court has been changed in well over 100 years. Uh, the court, uh, you will hear various people say that there's nothing in the Supreme Court about the number of people who are on the Supreme Court. And that's true. Uh, It's been at nine since roughly the Civil War era. Before that, it has been a political football at various times. Uh, Whenever there was an unpopular president, the Congress decided that they wanted to keep that president from making an appointment. They would change the composition of the court. Uh, They would say that instead of uh, appointing uh, a new justice, for example, if somebody uh, were to uh, pass away or to retire, instead of having the court at its current number, they would reduce the number by one so the president did not get to appoint a successor. Uh, so it, it's been done a few times. It was understood that this was transparently political. And it's, it sets a really unhealthy precedent uh, because, let's face it, uh, those of us who, who support things like you were talking about at the beginning of this program, like uh, taking a second look at Roe versus Wade, like taking an original intent approach to the U.S. Constitution, that is to read the U.S. Constitution the way it was written and meant to be interpreted by those who originally adopted those items. Those of us who have been on that side have been on the losing side for 60 years, uh, since at least the war in court, when they've talked about things like revising the definition of uh, the First Amendment when it came to prayer in schools, 
when it came to uh, Roe v. Wade and when it came to the newly discovered right uh, to redefine marriage and impose it on all 50 states from the top down just a few years ago, which the majority of Americans opposed at the time. So uh, we've been on the losing side of that, and we've been told, well, you just have to change the composition of the Supreme Court. You just have to get the Supreme Court to rule. Now that we have done so, and we've done so through democratic means during the election of 2016, now they want to completely change the U.S. Supreme Court and its composition without it having come up in an election. That's highly concerning. The U.S. Supreme Court um, plays an outsized role when the other branches are less than fully functional. That's the way it feels to me. Um, and so in my experience, the there's a growing, um, almost a dominant uh, influence that the Supreme Court now has because both the executive branch and Congress tend to not work very effectively with one another. And they're big things in terms of like good big things don't seem to get done. There seem, you know, and so uh, I feel like we have the Supreme Court weighing in because we have a failure at the federal level for really good legislation um, that's, that's helpful to a lot of people. Am I reading that, misreading that? What's your take? That's a good way. That, that's a really effective way of looking at it. You know, the, the, we can't even pass a budget anymore. And uh, so much of what happens, as we've seen over the last several administrations, is done through executive order, done through executive action. And as soon as one administration comes and goes, then the next one changes everything. And you see an interpretation being placed on laws uh, that's being imposed by the executive branch. That's not the way that it was ever intended to be. The Supreme Court is supposed to be the constitutional defense mechanism so that when bills come up or when when uh, there's a question about whether something is constitutional or not, the Supreme Court applies the Constitution to the law and says this bill either is in harmony with the spirit of the U.S. Constitution or it's forbidden by the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and, of course, uh, the court has not always lived up to that. It's often observed that in the breach, but that it's, that's its constitutional role. And uh, so that's that's why it's concerning where people want to make the uh, U.S. Supreme Court basically a rubber stamp of the executive branch. Uh, that's that's something that's really concerning because, uh, again, that's not the, that's not the court's function. It's not intended to be uh, an overly democratic body. If it were, then uh, the members, there, there are many more effective ways of doing it. Uh, you could put a, 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 a limit, uh, sort of a statute of limitations rather than a lifetime tenure appointment. Uh, you could, you could, of course, uh, have judges elected rather than appointed. But uh, frankly, this is, uh, this is just another way of redefining the court and making it less responsive to its original role as intended by the U.S. Constitution. Ben, let's take a very brief break. And then when we come back, let's talk about a couple of issues that are headed uh, to the Supreme Court that the, the Supreme Court has already agreed to take up um, as we head into the 2022 midterm uh, congressional election cycle. Ben Johnson is with me today. You can find him at dailywire.com. He is the rights writer. We'll be right back. All 
right. Uh, continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson, media reporter for The Daily Wire. Um, let's talk about these two really big issues that are headed um, to the Supreme Court ahead of um, the congressional midterms. I know it seems so strange to be talking about the 2022 election cycle, but it's going to be upon us now that we know some of what will be on the Supreme Court's docket um, for their next term. And those will include um, abortion, really a, a, a revisit of Roe v. Wade, um, and then a conversation about gun rights. So talk with us about uh, those cases. Yeah, well, elections never end now. They just change. So mm. it's a never-ending political cycle. But the, the two major cases, of course, involve two of the most contentious issues in American life, uh, two of the most hot-button uh, social issues that face us. Of course, we're talking about gun control, the Second Amendment, and abortion, the right to life. Uh, right to life has gotten quite a bit of media coverage, of course. This is the uh, Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case out of Mississippi. Uh, there was a bill that was signed by the governor of Mississippi saying that uh, abortion, for the most part, has to be uh, has to take place within the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, by the way, that is in line with uh, most of the legislation in Europe and other places around the world. The United States is one of only six countries that has absolutely no time limit when it comes to abortion. Uh, that's that's essentially unheard of. We're in league with places like China and North Korea when it comes to that. But you wouldn't know that from the media coverage of this. Uh, they, they've talked about a very restrictive law. You ever notice whenever abortion comes up, it's always an abortion restriction. It's very restrictive. And when uh, bills that would force Christians to do things against their conscience come up, they're always protections. Isn't that strange? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't protect anyone. It, it, it's actually more restrictive than the restrictions. And bills that would protect life and never protections, they're restrictions. So there's, there's certainly a media coverage there. But this is going to come up, and this is, uh, when it comes to the law behind it, this could be revolutionary because uh, Roe v. Wade, of course, from 1973, has been revised in terms of how much, uh, of how long a, um, uh, a legislation must wait before a child has protection. Uh, originally, it was the era of viability was 28 weeks, and then they revised that in 1992 in uh, KCD Planned Parenthood. Uh, they said that uh, science had changed and viability had moved backward. Well, science has changed since 1992. Thankfully, children are now viable outside the womb at an earlier and earlier age. But what's really revolutionary about Dobbs is they're saying, actually, uh, when it comes to the right to life, we have other reasons to restrict abortion and we have other reasons to protect life aside from viability. We actually have other reasons to protect life besides the fact that the child could survive outside the womb. So this could create an entire new level of legal protections for the unborn. And that terrifies and petrifies the the abortion industry because this whole area has never been looked at and it has massive public support. Uh, A reporter for the uh, New York Times just the other day was tweeting about how when you look at surveys, most Americans say they support Roe v. Wade, but then he looked at the actual specific concrete uh, legislation that's supported by Americans. He said they actually uh, support a lot of pro-life legislation that Roe would never allow, which to me was a great indictment of the media industry and how poorly they've covered what Roe v. Wade really does. And when you add Doe v. Bolton, they've done a terrible job of covering abortion jurisprudence uh, because they've reported in such a slanted fashion. That's uh, that's that case. When it comes to the Second Amendment case, of course, uh, there's a, a question case out of New York State uh, asking under what circumstances 
and how restrictive the right to a concealed carry permit can be. New York has extremely strict laws. Basically, you have to show if you want a concealed carry permit that you have a real and active threat to your life. Uh, in order to get uh, a, a right to concealed carry. And in many other states, of course, it's considered a constitutional right. You don't even have to get uh, a concealed carry permit. You can simply carry. So this is going to be questioned. Uh, of course, the Heller case uh, just a few years ago defined the Second Amendment as an individual right, which is how the founding fathers saw it. So this is going to be incredibly interesting, particularly with the millions of people who just became gun owners over the last year. Right. Um, I do think that, you know, Second Amendment conversations are very, very robust. Um, And so, you know, the agreement on Monday uh, of the Supreme Court to consider the scope of the Second Amendment, um, I think, is is it is interesting, at least, and um, and certainly something to watch um, for those who are gun owners and particularly interested in, um, you know, Ben, remind us, like, right, remind us why we have a Second Amendment. Like, I think it's just a helpful reminder every once in a while to revisit the rights list. Yes, and uh, this this was understood to be an individual right, uh, in part for self-defense, because, of course, we're living in the frontier era. Uh, when it, when uh, If someone breaks into your home, usually the crime takes place within a number of seconds, but police take several minutes to get there. So it was always understood you should be able to defend yourself, and this is particularly true in an incredibly rural or agrarian society. But uh, uh, And then also, of course, uh, people had the right to defend themselves against tyrannical governments. Uh, when it came particularly to uh, the U.S. Revolution, it was uh, precisely the idea to come and storm and take the armory in Massachusetts that led to the very early skirmishes of the U.S. Revolution. So uh, there, there is a whole history about uh, the United States founding when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. Either way, just one sort of inside baseball tip. Watch the role of Amy Coney Barrett when it comes to this case. Uh, when it comes to her jurisprudence, she's an originalist, and some of her best thought-out cases had to do with the right to keep and bear arms. She went into colonial uh, legislation. She went into uh, the constitutional founding. She went into the original uh, statutes that have been passed by the 13 colonies in some of her jurisprudence, I wouldn't be surprised if she either writes the case or she has a defining role when it comes to the outcome. Um, let's take a couple of minutes and talk about uh, violence related to Antifa. Sometimes this doesn't include, in fact, often does not include the use of firearms, but, um, you know, violence and uh, and bricks and rocks and uh, flagpoles and other, uh, you know, other bats and armament um, and certainly the use of arson. Um, you know, violence on the streets of America does not always include the use of firearms. Talk with us about uh, Antifa and in particular the CNN ho- uh, host praising Antifa violence. Yeah, of course, we've seen what Antifa is uh, capable of over the last year where you've had for the most part, uh, it would have been described as mostly peaceful protests. But then when the majority of protesters go home, then you have this Antifa core who continue uh, to set fire, to, to break into stores, to loot and so on. And for the most part, uh, in Portland, what's been going on for most of a year now, or I guess uh, at this stage more than a year, uh, is this ongoing Antifa revolution uh, trying to burn down the federal building. And as you said, it's not usually firearms, although occasionally firearms are involved, but it's 
simply street battles. Uh, it's people being beaten with baseball bats or swarmed uh, by an entire group of people uh, who are wearing masks and hoods. And that's bad whether those are black in the case of Antifa, whether they're white, as in the case of the Ku Klux Klan. Violence is a, it, it's a, essentially a show that we have fallen apart as a society and that we are losing our grounding as a Judeo-Christian people. So uh, that's always concerning. CNN has a program called the United Shades of America. Uh, it's on weekends on CNN, hosted by W. Kamal Bell. And uh, he actually met with two Antifa protesters in Portland, gave a highly sympathetic uh, view of things. And he mentioned, you know, yes, people get hurt, but they're working for justice, essentially is the way that he put it, uh, as though this were the way that you should go about working for justice. But when we give up on dialogue, when we give up on trying to convert people, then we're falling apart as a society. We're on the high road to becoming Lebanon, uh, which is a way for us to become balkanized. It's a way for us to end up in a real hot civil war. Uh, we do not need more violence in America. The answer for us is to change the culture, to have a culture of respect. And we can start by respecting the right to life. If you want um, really good reporting on what uh, Antifa is up to from a person who has been not only reporting but injured by them, um, I'd encourage you to follow Andy No. His last name is spelled N-G-O. Um, you can just Google him and uh, and follow what he's writing. Um, he's probably, in my view, um, one of the best people out there in terms of on-the-ground reporting related to um, related to Antifa. Uh, you can also find him at The Post Millennial. Um, ben, thank you, as always, so very much. You guys can find Ben Johnson at DailyWire.com. Uh, and you can also just reach out to him uh, on Twitter. He's the rights writer. Thanks, my brother. Thank you. God bless. You too. We'll be right back. All right, so we have gr- growing calls across the country for police reform. We have a national debate over the deadly use of force. Police departments are struggling um, to attract officers and retain officers. Law enforcement officials are under tremendous stress um, across the country. Police officials and union uh, leaders are describing the state of recruiting as in crisis mode. We have the uh, Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police Lodge Number no. 5 union representative quoted as saying it's a perfect storm. We're anticipating that the department here is going to be understaffed by several hundred members. Hundreds of guys are either retiring or taking other jobs and leaving the department. That's in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, meanwhile, um, uh, uh, in, uh, in St. Louis, the new mayor has announced he plans to cut 98 police positions replacing them with social workers. The city of Seattle is reporting a loss of more than 20% of its police force, while the governor of the state of Washington has signed a dozen police reform uh, laws into effect just this past Tuesday. Albany, New York, should have um, about 135 patrol officers. The actual number is now 52. The city of Minneapolis now owes more than $35 million in workers' comp to its police officers who were physically and mentally injured during riots and uh, and for whom the city has not, to this point, been willing to stand itself up. Um, police reform, that is what is on the docket next. We're going to talk with Paul Lee, president of the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers. We'll be right back.
When I was growing up, there was a lot of tension in our home. We spent many dinners around the table in frustrated silence. You know what that taught me about dealing with problems? Just avoid them. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That lesson from my childhood wasn't the best one. The higher the tension gets at home, the easier it is to check out, to stay quiet, or find some convenient distraction. Though it may seem like the easier route, it's doing more harm in the long run. Instead, choose to talk about issues in the home, even when it's hard. Your proactive approach, asking questions, listening to the answer, and sticking with it will go a long way to relieving the tension in your home. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. us again today. He's the president of the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers. You can find them at fcpo.org. Paul, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. Talk with us about um, where we are in terms of policing reform. I know that it is a conversation that we try to have nationally, but it's ultimately a conversation that's had very locally. Well, to, to tell you the truth, I really don't know where we are. I'm, I've read a lot of articles, and, and I've listened to the news, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, they're treating this like they do, or they have many, many years in the past. They, uh, they get People get some ideas, and they think they're good ideas, and, and they shove them in, and then they don't work, and the one left to blame is the, is the cop on the street. So let's talk about um, cops on the street for just a minute. Um, what you know? What are you hearing from um, from your friends and colleagues across the country? Well, law enforcement knows that that things can change. They need to change, uh, Cameron. The the problem is no one ever asks us. Mm. If you look at at who changes and who dictates how police officers operate, it's everyone outside of the profession. I mean, it's one of the few professions, I think, in the country that where everyone outside of the profession that has nothing to do with the profession, that has no intentions of ever having anything to do with the profession, tells the profession how it's supposed to operate. And then when right, things so, don't work, yeah, when but, things don't work exactly like they think, then it's that officer's fault. Right. And, and, we, and we put all the blame on that individual um, and scapegoat them in many, many cases. So let's talk about, um, you know, I'll just I'll just pick a state here. Let's let's sure. pick the state of Washington, um, where Governor Inslee has um, calling it a moral mandate, has signed a dozen bills into law um, under, you know, under the broad heading of police reform. Um, and let's just walk through them. And just as a you know, as a law enforcement officer and an expert in this field and a person who's in ongoing relationship with, you know, with guys actually out there um, patrolling, you know, how do you respond to a bill that bans the use of chokeholds and neck restraints, restricting the use of tear gas, prohibiting police agencies from acquiring any military-grade equipment? Well, 
Well, first, I'm kind of stunned about the, the whole chokehold thing because uh, back, I mean, I've been retired for 16 years, but even long before I retired, uh, my department stopped using those. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stunned that, that people still use them. Uh, if you're trained properly, it's not a, it's not a big deal. Uh, but a lot of times they're not trained properly. Uh, the use of, of military-grade equipment, the only reason we take that, that material uh, and that equipment is because it's given to us. You know, um, a lot of departments have to buy their own equipment. That, I mean, it's not furnished. And when something's given to you, you, you take it. And a lot of the equipment we have, uh, even here in Chattanooga, we have a, a, a military vehicle that we've had for a long time but it's used to go in and rescue somebody that's that's down, that, that bullets are still flying, and they can go in and, and they can recover somebody who's hurt safely. That's all it's for. It's for nothing else. So the appearance is, is what we're talking about. The appearance looks bad. And so all of that needs to change, and there needs to be a dialogue between law enforcement and the community and not community leaders with politicians. Because bottom line is, when people think they have a good idea and it comes through politicians and the politicians demand that it's done, and basically what the politicians and stuff are trying to do are tell police officers to be good. Well, we want you to be good, and at the same time we want to keep separation of church and state, and we want to keep this Bible stuff out of our departments, but you be good and we'll determine what good is when you go out and do it. And that just doesn't work. Yeah, so let's uh, let's remind everybody about um, the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers because, you know, it feels like that is the heartbeat of, of where you are serving and working. And that is, you know, let's be sure that our officers are genuinely good um, because that is the that's the real place out of which they're going to be able to protect and serve. It, it most certainly is, and, and a lot of guys go to, as you know, Romans chapter thirteen, and you know where Scripture will state that uh, the government doesn't carry the sword for nothing. And and I'm, I have to make people stop, back up. What does the first part of that say? It says we are God's servants to do good. Our main goal should be to do good. And that's what we should be looking at, but that's not trained. You know, nobody knows how to train that. They know how to train you to stay alive, to do your job, to write reports, to know laws, you know, but in doing good, that's just not trained. And there's sometimes there's not enough time to do good during the day because you're constantly going from one call to the next. And, you know, as we see with the shortage of law enforcement now, it's not getting any better. You know, the community would like us to be part of the community, but if you don't have time to stop, you can't be part of the community. So it's this huge double-edged sword that nobody really understands. You know, the cops would love to be more involved in the community. I mean, that's what they like to do. They want to know the people. But if you don't have time to do that, you don't have time. And all of a sudden, you're only doing things reactive. You know, I tell people all the time in my 25-plus years on the job, no one ever called me to come to their house to tell me they had a good day. 
it was always to fix a problem or there was a disaster or there was a tragedy and it was one call right after another. So um, let's take a very, very brief break, Paul. And when we come back, um, let, let's talk about some good ideas. Like, right, so those of us who might be in a position in our community to speak into policing reform in our own communities, like we should have ideas that come from law enforcement. Um, and so let's talk about some of those uh, when we come back. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. I'm talking with Paul Lee, retired captain of the Chattanooga Police Department, executive director of the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers here in the United States. We'll be right back. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Paul Lee. He's president of the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers. Paul, let's talk about, you know, if you could if you could have the ear of um of people on city councils across the country and mayors across the country and others who are um writing and passing police reform in particular communities, what are some of the good ideas you would like to see them consider? Well, uh, the, the first thing I would ask them to do is take time to, most departments have a civilian police academy. Go through that. That'll give them an understanding of what goes on in a, with a police officer. Right now, they don't have any understanding. And uh, <clears throat> see how some of these changes that they want to bring in, you know, would really affect the officer and what the officer really goes through. Uh, the other changes would be trying to bring communities and law enforcement officers together to get to know each other. Uh, you know, there's this huge gap because there was a time where you knew people in your area, you knew their names. Well, and our police that, officers lived, lived in our communities, and in many cases yeah. they can't afford to live in our communities anymore. That is the truth. That, that is the truth. And we have this huge vacuum. Cameron, right now we've got guys that are retiring, and uh, they, uh, instead of staying around, they retire, which is a good thing. That's just good, normal attrition. It keeps a police department and any organization healthy. But we also have guys that are getting their tenure, and they're leaving. So we've got this double vacuum. And then we have the guys that, that will never make it to tenure because they can't do the job, and they leave. And, uh, you know, I... You know, I'm no prophet or anything like that, Cameron, but I look at it and we're left with this remnant of law enforcement out there, this small remnant. And these guys can't quit, and they don't understand why. And, you know, I see it as part of our mission to, to let them know that the reason they can't quit is because God has called them and placed them there to do this job, whatever it takes. And these guys can be trained to understand people. These guys can be trained to unleash their compassion because you lose your compassion quickly on the street when you're running from one call to the other and you're looking at what human beings do to each other. It kind of goes away. And then when you couple that with all the media that's, that's just constantly demonizing everything that you're trying to do and you have the public now that understands that it's their right to speak vilely to you, to spit on you, to do... They think they can do whatever they want to to you personally and physically 
you know, with no repercussions. And then when the repercussions happen, then that's when the video cameras come out, you know, and you start seeing, you know, what the public would call bad behavior. And the thing is, I can't think of a single time where I went to arrest somebody that did not want to be arrested that it looked pretty. It just doesn't look pretty. Well, have you Which, ever gone to arrest somebody who wanted to be arrested? Well, I mean, let's just start there. Like, right? That's just not, I mean, that's just not, right? Nobody wants that, right? And so if that's what's happening, I mean, you're already having a bad day. Um, yes. Something has gone really awry um, if the police are um, are interested in you spending time with them, um yeah, in, in a way that you weren't doing in a voluntary manner. So I, I get, like, I get that. I get that there is, um, there's this disconnect. And I think that's what you and I are trying to um, help people see and understand um, is that there is a, a serious disconnect in America and in American communities between um, law enforcement and people who, you know, rely, we rely on law enforcement for all kinds of things. And, um, and there's a disconnect. There's, there's a, a disconnect. Dis- yeah. I think the word we're looking for, Cameron, is reconciliation. Hmm. You know, we need to reconcile with each other. You know, there's, there, there's been enough tragedy and disaster and bad behavior on both sides. And there, there needs to come a time where we can sit down and reconcile. If we look back through history, you know, and even recently, you know, it's always law enforcement's fault. You know, all these things that are going on in Washington and these laws and these bills, it's to it's it's on police officers. We're going we're going to have justice because we're going to fix these police officers. But at what point in time do we say we need some citizen? Uh, reform okay you know so let's let's if i know yeah no so let's pause there for just a second because one of these um in fact this is a this is something that's been approved in brooklyn center by the brooklyn uh, center city council they've passed police reform package um and one of those measures is uh, you know not only increasing independent oversight of the police department um and a prohibition of arrest for low level offenses which means the police are not going to be enforcing all the laws they're going to be enforcing laws selectively which i have no idea how that works but then it, there's this then there's this the use of unarmed civilians to handle quote minor traffic violations um let's just pause right there how does a police officer know right now if if a person who has uh committed a minor traffic violation is not armed. How do you know that when you when you engage someone initially because of a minor traffic violation? I'm going to say here they ran a stop sign uh, when nobody else was at the intersection. So I'm going to use that. Like right, I I would view that as minor, like a rolling, like failed to make a complete stop. That seems like a minor. I might be wrong, but that feels like a minor traffic violation. I'm at a four way stop. I can actually see there's nobody else coming in any direction. For whatever reason, I didn't see the uh, the patrol officer sitting there. But um, right, but I rolled through the stop sign. That that might feel to me as a driver like a minor traffic violation. But how does the officer who is engaging me know in advance that I'm not armed? I don't know. And what I, does it? And I, what I, does I, an I encounter look like between a civilian who pulls me over and is unarmed, 
if if I'm not actually just a good fellow American who rolled through a stop sign? I don't know. I've I read just, those that's just signs. fearful to I'm me. Just, I mean, I, I'm just I'm, it all sounds good. It sounds flowery for politicians and it's practically impossible. I mean, they, they can go ahead. I can I know that departments around the country use civilians to work traffic accidents. That helps free the officers up. I understand that, you know, but now you're... Yeah, you're minor wanting... minor traffic accidents where, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, even not major traffic accidents, I got I to gotta tell you, I go down the roads where I live, and sometimes, um, you know, an accident is obviously of such a... Uh, of whatever. It's, it's yeah. was disastrous enough that it's not even just my local sheriff's department who's there. It's the state troopers. And That's so right. something obviously really bad happened um, yeah. or somebody really bad is involved. And and maybe that's maybe that sounds condemnatory for me to say, but I'm glad that we have these layers. I'm glad for my very local kind of Barney Fife-ish police that are in my super duper small town. And I'm really thankful for the sheriff's department that, you know, feels like the layer above that. And then I'm incredibly thankful for the state troopers who I feel like are more well-equipped and probably more well-resourced than the guys at those, you know, kind of more local levels. And so, um, you know, and, and so I don't know, maybe, maybe I sound like a law enforcement advocate. I guess I'm an advocate of, um, a, a peaceable society, and I recognize the not only reality of sin, but the total depravity um, of humanity. Sure. And I recognize that not everybody has come to Jesus. So, you know, while I'm praying and, and actively working for um, spiritual r- r- revival, I'm also like living in the midst of a reality of a fallen and broken and sinful culture. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, to- you're totally right on that. Uh, and we see it every single day. And, you know, you've got to understand that, you know, as far as law enforcement goes, it's, it can be probably classified as a, as a lost uh, people group. So we, we have lost officers dealing with lost people, and we expect them not to act like lost people. Mm. On both sides. I, I just find, yeah, I just find that just mm-hmm. <laughs> overwhelming. What, what do you expect them to act like? Well, thank you. Yeah, Paul, I want to thank you for what you're doing at the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers to work on, you know, one side of that conversation, um, you know, as you seek to bring the light of Christ to law enforcement across the country and work with Christians who are uh, already in law enforcement um, to bring their influence to bear um, on the culture writ large. So thank you so much. And thank you for your perspective today. Well, you're welcome. All right, friends, that's it for the first hour today. We've got another hour uh, of Mornings with Carmen up next. Let me encourage you to be of encouragement to um, law enforcement officers in your own community today. I'm going to um, I'm going to find out if we've got one of these um, uh, civilian police academies in my community. Maybe that would be an interesting way for us to start uh, developing real relationships with law enforcement in our local communities. All right. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.